The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving to God, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, to concentrate. You're going to need it this morning, so just put a little extra in your prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that You have given us clear teaching, clear instruction, clear revelation about who You are and Your plan, Your purposes for human history. Father, You have declared the end from the beginning and You have clearly communicated to us and You have given us Your Holy Spirit to help us to understand Your revelation. Now, Father, as we study Your Word this morning, particularly in relationship to how You have revealed it and preserved it for us, we pray that we might have our confidence strengthened as we see Your remarkable plan unfold. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, I was at some, one of the pastors' conferences or study groups that I attended recently, and I was talking with some old friends of mine. They were asking me about the church, and uh, one question was, well, what's it like during the summer? Do you just lose everybody? Which is pretty standard in a small church. So I said, no, the worst time for us is in January and February when the adults and the kids start getting the flu, and then nobody shows up. You know, summer's really great. It's the winter that's tough. So we, you were the faithful remnant this morning, I guess, or the healthy remnant, shall we say. This morning we're going to begin a new study in relation to the Old Testament. It's important to look at the Old Testament. I think that most Christians today are woefully ignorant of the Old Testament. And the Scripture says some very profound things about the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, We read, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to Timothy and he reminds him of how Timothy through his mother and his grandmother was taught the Scriptures from infancy. And notice he refers to the Scriptures as the sacred writings. Throughout the Scriptures, the New Testament, we see this emphasis that there is a body of literature called sacred writings, called the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, and the Word of God. Now, at the time that Timothy was a child, nothing in the New Testament had been written. So when Paul says from childhood, these sacred writings, he is talking about the Old Testament canon that was available to Timothy. The very fact that he uses the phrase sacred writings indicates that there was an assumed canon of Scripture at that time that was authoritative. And he says about that in verse 15 that these sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So he says of the Old Testament that it's able to give them all the information he needed to be saved and it pointed to Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.16, which is familiar to all of you, we read, All Scripture is inspired, and it's the Greek word theopneustos, which means breathed out by God. All Scripture in this context refers not just to the New Testament, 
But when we realize that Paul wrote this in about 62 A.D., only 16, approximately 16 of the 27 New Testament books had been written, the primary application of this is to Old Testament canon, not to the New Testament. So when Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It certainly has application to the New Testament, but in terms of interpretation, which is what he had in mind when he wrote it, he was referring mostly to what was available in the Old Testament canon. Then we go to 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, and Peter writes, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And so when he is talking about the prophecy of Scripture here, Peter is writing a little after Paul, so a little more of the New Testament has been written, but the canon of the New Testament has not been completed. And so in his mind, when he writes of the prophecy of Scripture, he has in mind Old Testament canon, not New Testament canon. And then in verse 21, he goes on to make the Phenomenal statement related to the mechanics of inspiration, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, this is not man's writings about God or his experiences with God, but it is God so governing the individual human authors of Scripture that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God guaranteed that what they wrote reflected absolute truth and He preserved it from error. So this gives us a clear statement of divine inspiration and inerrancy related to Old Testament revelation. The fact that he uses the term Scripture assumes that between himself and his audience there is a body of literature that is considered authoritative for the Christian life. That certain books, certain writings were included within that and certain ones were excluded. So the very use of this term, as we'll see, by Jesus, by the disciples and the apostles, assumed during the New Testament that there was a closed canon of the Old Testament and that it was common knowledge what that canon was. Now, what I want to do in this first hour as we begin our study of the Old Testament is to look at the foundation, which is really understanding the canon of the Old Testament. And we want to ask, how did this come about? and exactly what is the extent of the Old Testament canon, and how well has it been transmitted to us. Especially when we think of the fact that some of the writings in the Old Testament, for example, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, were written by Moses about 1400 B.C. That was some almost 3,500 years ago. How well has that been communicated to us? Has the text been preserved? So we want to ask basic questions about understanding the text of the Old Testament and how accurate it is. And then next time we will begin to look at God's plan for glorifying Himself through the creation of the universe and the human race. And we're just going to work our way through the Old Testament. We're not going to look at every incident. That would take lengthy time. But I want to give you a, an understanding, not just simply what were the stories. To some degree, I'm going to assume that you have a basic knowledge of the Old Testament, um, at least to some degree. I know some of you have. If you don't, you ought to get get a, something and read it. Get a get a uh, maybe a paraphrase and read it. I I remember when I was in college, I thought that I was woefully ignorant of the Old Testament. And at that time, there was a little thing called BC. It was like a Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament. They had taken the Living Bible and then they had just cut out a lot and and brought it down to just about 400 pages, and it was pretty simple to read. And I read through the whole thing in just a matter of days and realized and got a framework for understanding what was going on in the Old Testament, who the major players were, what the themes were, what the uh, major events were. But we're not going, I'm not going to look at this so much in terms of, of what the stories were, but try to show what they mean, what their significance is, sort of a theology of the Old Testament. And as we look at that, we'll see that the unifying concept in the Old Testament is the kingdom of God and its glorification. We see that God steps into a sinful cosmos, a universe that has already been judged for sin because of the fall of the 
of Satan and the fallen angels, and it begins with the redemptive act of God. So that even from the starting point in Genesis 1, we see that the work of God, the outworking of the kingdom of God in human history is redemptive and there is a salvation theme working throughout the Old Testament from its very inception. We'll see that in creation, God begins His first act of salvation and the entire Old Testament works out that redemptive plan. Psalm 74.12 states it, For God is my King of old, focusing on the kingdom idea, working salvation in the midst of the earth. That God is the one who took the initiative to redeem creation after the angelic fall and that God continually takes the initiative in human history to redeem mankind and to provide a gracious solution to man's problem. So we will tie all of this together and see how it all works. And when we get through, it'll take about three or four months, then we'll start a study of judges. But we need to have a framework for understanding the Old Testament. Now, one of the mistakes I think that people make, common misunderstanding, is that there's no missionary thrust in the Old Testament. We will see that Israel is a missionary thrust. In the New Testament, we have the church, and, God, and, and our Lord's command to the church was to scatter, to go out. To, in uh, Acts 1.8, they were told to move from Jerusalem to Judea and then to the uttermost parts of the world. But Israel was to stay in one location. And if you look at a map, and we'll put a map up eventually, and we'll look at the caravan routes, all the caravan routes of the world intersected in Judea. So they were to be a missionary agency to the world, and God would bring the world to Israel. And by being taking a stand for the Lord and teaching the truth, then these Gentiles who came from all over the world would hear the truth and then take it back with them to their various uh, countries. Of course, we see that Israel continually failed in that, and that's one reason God disciplined them by scattering them out among all the nations. Now, one of the other things that we will see in this is that uh, a little problem, I think, today is that when people start off with evangelism, they immediately jump to Jesus. They immediately start talking about the fact that you need to trust Christ as your Savior without laying any foundation. Think of how God evangelized the world. We saw in our brief study over Christmas the Incarnation. The Incarnation, though, did not take place at the beginning of human history. You have Adam's sin, and then God's promise, initial promise of salvation in Genesis 3, where He, in His cursing, He promises that not only that, uh, that man would be cursed from sin, but God would pro- provide a perfect solution. In that, uh, we, we don't see Eve, her seed. God says to Adam and Eve, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. But it's not her son. The first son, the first generation, second generation, third generation did not see the fulfillment of that promise. Why is it that God waited almost 4,000 years plus before He provided a Savior? Because God had to lay the groundwork. He had to provide the foundation. When we witness to people and we say, you have to believe in Jesus, He died for your sins, we immediately are raising concepts that the hearer may not understand. We talk about the fact that Jesus is God, that He's the God-man. Well, how do you know what God is? Their concept of God may not be the biblical concept of God. So the foundation is laid by going into the Old Testament. And it is there in seeing how God works with the human race as a whole and then Israel specifically starting in Genesis 12 that we see who God is and we come to understand His character. So that when Jesus comes along in the Incarnation, we have an understanding of His significance. But without the Old Testament as a prelude to that, then Jesus is rather meaningless. He's just a, another, human, another figure in human history. So we're going to look at the Old Testament and put all of that together. So let's begin this morning with a look at the Old Testament canon and how we got it. We'll cover three things. First of all, the arrangement of the canon. Secondly, the division of the canon. And third, the extent and the transmission of the canon. The arrangement, the division, and the extent and transmission of the canon. Now, the word canon means a rule or standard. It's from the Greek word 
K-A-N-O-N. And it originally referred to a measuring rod or a reed used to measure things and came to refer to a rule or a standard. It's not C-A-N-N-O-N. It is written in English C-A-N-O-N. And it has to do with describing that set of writings that are authoritative for the spiritual life. We'll talk about both the Hebrew canon, which is the Old, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and a small portion of it was written in Aramaic. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, through Daniel chapter 7 was written in Aramaic, and Ezra chapters 4 through 6, plus a couple of odd verses here and there, was written in Aramaic. All of the writers of the Old Testament were Jewish, and the Old Testament was transmitted and copied by Jews. They developed a group called the scribes who are responsible for the transmission of the text. And over the years, they developed certain rules and criterion to preserve the text, to protect it from error, eventually culminating in what in a group that became known as the Masoretes in the early Middle Ages. And the Masoretes developed various rules for preserving the vowel points. For example, in Hebrew, there is there are no vowel points. It is a consonantal language. And so you have a verb that would look like this, bara, which means to create, but you don't have any vowels there. Those are all consonants. And depending on how you uh, vocalize it, that's the correct term, where you put the vowels, what kind of vowels you have, depends on what it is. For example, if you put a dot here, which stands for an O, and then two dots under here, which is an E-class or an I-class verb, and it read as an E, boreth, and if, uh, then that would indicate a participle. If you have uh, a different set of vowels here like this, then that would indicate that it is a perfect tense verb and it would be pronounced bara. So just by changing the vowels, you change the pronunciation of the word. And of course, you would imagine that if you didn't have any vowels there, you may not be sure just what the word was. So the Masoretes developed this, this system of these little dots and dashes to put under the consonants in order to preserve the reading of the text. And so what we have today that underlies your uh, Old Testament translation is what is referred to as, as the Masoretic text. And this is abbreviated, the MT. And up until recently, the oldest copy of the Masoretic text that we had dated back to about 1008 A.D., and we'll see a little more about that uh, as we come along. In the Old Testament, all the writers were Jewish, but they had, they, as they collected the books that were written from Moses and the prophets, they arranged them in three divisions according to the office of the writer. That's the difference between the Hebrew canon and the English canon. Uh, in the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, they divided everything according to the office of the writer. For example, if the writer were a prophet, then his, what he wrote, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, was classified among the prophets. If he was a... Um, and Moses stood by himself as the author of the Pentateuch. And then there were the writings. So there were three basic divisions in the Hebrew canon. And we will look at those. They're divided into three groups. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Let me see that a little better. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah, Torah basically means the law or instruction. Nevi'im is from the Hebrew word for prophets. The I-M ending is a plural ending. And the Ketuvim is the writing. The Torah consisted of Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Nevi'im was divided into two groups. The early prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, they don't divide things between First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, or First and Second Chronicles. Those divisions came because the books were so long, they had to go on two different scrolls. So they came to be divided in the Septuagint and later, and in the other uh, translations. But in the original Hebrew, you ju they just arranged it in two groups: the early prophets and the latter prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then what we call the minor prophets were just lumped together in one group called the Twelve. The former prophets all had a unique ministry 
We don't know exactly who wrote those books. We know that Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. But we don't know who wrote Joshua through Kings. We do know that there was a school of the prophets, especially Shiloh. Uh, you had Samuel was a prophet. You had other prophets such as uh, Gad and Nathan. You had uh, Elijah and Elisha later on, and they headed up the school of the prophets. And it was very likely that they kept at that location the uh, scrolls that were handed down, and they continued to keep records. We know from reading the Old Testament that there were other sources that did not survive, that we don't have available to us today, that um, they apparently used as resources as they wrote the Scriptures. And then over time, a prophet would finalize a copy of the text, and then that would not be uh, dealt with any longer. Among the latter prophets, you have a, a distinction that that uh, they had these men, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all had personal encounters with God and they were given tremendous revelation about the future and about God's plan uh, for mankind. And we see that in their meeting with God that, that it was an overwhelming experience for them. Isaiah met God and, and as he saw God and fell before Him, he, he realized how um, impotent man was and that all of man's self-assertion against God was nothing but a sham. And they saw that Israel was destined for ruin and for judgment because of the way that they treated God's Word and treated it so lightly. The third division is the Ketuvim. These are the writings. The authors were not prophets, even though uh, the Psalms were written by David and he certainly had the gift of prophecy. He had the office of king. He did not hold the office of prophet. Proverbs were written by Solomon, who also was a king. Job was uh, written by someone uh, unknown. We can't call him a prophet. We're not even sure if he was Jewish. He probably wasn't. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible, and probably the activities in Job probably took place somewhere between the flood and uh, the call of Abraham. The Song of Songs was written by Solomon, who was a king. Ecclesiastes was also written by, by uh, Solomon. Daniel was written by a statesman. He was a prime minister. Even though Daniel gave a tremendous amount of prophecy and was a prophet, he did not hold that office. He was, probably, he was second in command in the Persian Empire. He was elevated to a position not unlike a prime minister under Nebuchadnezzar. But he uh, did not have a position, an office, did not hold the office of prophet. Ezra and Nehemiah were priests. And Ezra and Nehemiah probably wrote their, the book's name for them, as well as other priests wrote the book of Chronicles. We're not sure who wrote Esther. It could have been written by uh, any of the uh, priests at that particular time, so it's grouped among the writings. So this is how the Jews grouped the Bible, the, arranged the books in the Hebrew Old Testament, according to the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So that the first book in a Hebrew Bible is Genesis, and a la the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament is Chronicles. Depending on how they arrange things, for example, we have Ruth. Ruth is usually uh, assigned to Judges, so they, they're collected together. Lamentations is usually included along with Jeremiah in the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes it's separate, sometimes it's, it's connected. So depend depending on who you read, there's either 22 or 24 books in the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, that is significant, and we'll see why in a few minutes. In the English Bible, the text is divided into five sections. Law, the books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Historical books, the English Old Testament groups books according to their subject matter. So, these historical books are Joshua through Esther, covering the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Then you have your poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, which is the correct title, not the Song of Solomon, Lamentations. And then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and in the English Bible, Daniel is considered a major prophet. And then you have the twelve minor prophets. Now, this is the Canon. These are the books that have made, it, made their way into our Old Testament. How 
But what about other books? We need to ask the question about the canon. What do we mean by the canon? What is it? There is a problem with the canon, and that is, what is its extent? Are we sure that these are the only books that should be included in the canon, or should there be other books? Well, first we need to define canon. Canon is those books which authoritatively reveal the plan, the purposes, and the priorities of God for the human race. Let me say that again. The canon is those books which authoritatively reveal the plan, the purposes, and the priorities of God for the human race. Now, I say it that way because frequently you will hear it defined as the books that are authoritative for faith and practice. And when you hear that, you ought to be aware of what's not said and not what is said. See, faith and practice is restrictive. What about history? What about biology? What about uh, the military? What about other things that may not relate to faith and practice that are somewhat tangential to the text? So what we're saying is that the Word of God, because it is inspired by God and it's infallible, it authoritatively reveals the plans and the purposes and priorities of God in every arena of life for the human race. And this is the basic difference between liberalism and liberal theology and conservative theology. Liberalism basically says that the Bible is not the Word from God. When they say it's the Word of God, it's not the Word from God, but is the human Word about God. According to liberal concepts, man decided what would be in the canon. The conservative view is that man recognized the books that had inherent authority. And if you take the time to read some of the debated books that are in the Apocrypha, you can immediately see some of the differences. You can just tell. It's sort of like when you run into a person that has a sense of authority about them. Somebody who's been in the military for 30 years and has a command presence, and they walk into a room, they immediately have a persona, and they take charge, and you follow them instinctively because this is a man who has leadership. You recognize it. And the same thing is true about the canon of Scripture, is that these books are recognized as having authority. They are not given authority by a group of people. Often when we talk about the canon of the Old Testament, People will say that, well, the, the rabbis just picked those books and it was decided at the Council of Jamnia, which occurred about 90 A.D., that is, after uh, the fall of Jerusalem, 20 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And as we will see, that is a completely false notion. But you will, if you get involved in a conversation with somebody who's read a few things, they, they will come up with that charge and say, well, how can you know that? That's just something the Jews came up with. And we'll see that that's not true. The question we have to ask is what is the extent of the canon and how can we be sure that there aren't other books that ought to be in the canon? There has never been a consensus among all Christians as to what should be in the canon. For example, Roman Catholics also include a group of books called the Apocrypha. Eastern Orthodox and Syrian churches also include various books that are not included as part of the Protestant canon of Scripture. So we want to look a little bit at this whole issue of the Apocrypha, and I'm sure that many of you, because of your background, will be interested in having some answers on this. The term Apocrypha means hidden, obscure, or spurious. These are the books that are included as part of the Apocrypha, Tobit, Judith, Six additions to the book of Esther. In the, it, these are all included in the Old Testament. If you look in a Dewey version of the, of the Bible or New Jerusalem Bible or some other Roman Catholic version, then you will see that Tobit and Judith are included after Nehemiah. There are six editions in the book of Esther. Wisdom of Solomon and Another book called the, it has various titles. It's The Wisdom of Jesus, The Son of Sirach. It's also called Ben Sirah or Ben Sirach or Ecclesiastic Cuts. Don't get that confused with Ecclesiastes. 
Ecclesiasticus. That's included after uh, these are included after the Song of Solomon. Then Baruch, who was Jeremiah's assistant, there's a book named for him, a letter of Jeremiah that's usually included in part of Jeremiah. Then there's the one work, the Prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Young Men, which is usually included in Daniel, inserted between Daniel 3.23 and 3.24. And then uh, another work, Susanna and Bell and the Dragon, which are either put as a preface to Daniel or at the end of Daniel as Daniel chapter 13. And then the last two books are First and Second Maccabees, which are historical books which describe the intertestamental period, what went on between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Regarding the Apocrypha, Bruce Metzger, who is, I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he was the head of the Greek Department and New Testament Department at at uh, Princeton, and is a fairly well-known textual critic and textual scholar, writes in the introduction to the Oxford Annotated Apocrypha the following. At the end of the 4th century, Pope Damasus commissioned Jerome, the most learned biblical scholar of his day, to prepare the standard Latin version of the Scriptures. And this is what has become known as the Latin Vulgate. So this is around 390-395 A.D. In the Old Testament... Jerome followed the Hebrew canon and by means of prefaces called the reader's attention to the separate category of the apocryphal books. So he recognized clearly that there was an Old Testament canon. He accepted as canonical only the Hebrew Old Testament canon. And yet, by means of a preface, he said these other books have been included because they do give some helpful information and they're good to read, but they are not part of the canon. So even though Jerome translated the Vulgate and included the Apocrypha by means of his preface, he rejected it as canonical. <clears throat> he wrote that anything outside of these, 30, these 39 Old Testament books, what we have in the English, 30, English canon, anything outside of these must be placed within the Apocrypha. Now, Metzger goes on to say, Subsequent copyists of the Latin Bible, however, were not always careful to transmit Jerome's prefaces. In other words, over the years, those prefaces that excluded that from the canon dropped out so that it looked for all, to every reader that these were part of the canon of the Old Testament. So subsequent copyists of the Latin Bible, however, were not always careful to transmit Jerome's prefaces. And during the medieval period, the Western Church generally regarded these books as part of the Holy Scriptures. At one of the prolonged sessions which occurred at the Council of Trent on April 8, 1546, with only 53 prelates present, and not one of those was a scholar distinguished for historical learning, the Council of Trent decreed that the canon of the Old Testament includes all of the Apocrypha. They excluded the prayer of Manasseh in First and Second Ezra. Now, what's significant about that is at the end of their deliberations, the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation, the Council of Trent anathematized, that means they put, they cursed, anyone who, quote, does not accept these entire books with all their parts as they have customarily been read in the Catholic Church and are found in the ancient editions of the Latin Vulgate as sacred and canonical. So this group of unlearned scholars decided that because it was in the Latin Vulgate that it was authoritative. And so that's how the Apocrypha came to be included in the Old Testament canon. Now, what are the problems with the Apocrypha? First of all, it was, they were written predominantly in Greek. Now, some of them were not. Tobit, Judith, Ecclesiasticus, part of Baruch, and First Maccabees were written in either Hebrew or Aramaic. But the rest were all written in Greek which is quite different from the Hebrew or Aramaic Old Testament. The second problem is that they were written late, after the Old Testament canon was already closed. Now, that's very important. It is clear from Jewish writings that the Old Testament canon, that Jews believed the Old Testament canon was closed by about 275 to 300 A.D. So, this, these were written... Uh, much later, around 150 to 100, uh, excuse me, the old Jews believed the Old Testament canon was closed 
by 275 B.C. They believed it was closed. The last book written in the Old Testament was about 325 to 350 B.C. And it wasn't long after that that they believed the canon was closed and God was no longer speaking. So these apocryphal books were written about 175 to 100 B.C. after the Jews had already recognized the closing of the canon. Third, there are a number of historical, geographical, and chronological errors in these books. For example, in Tobit 1, verses 4 and 5, you read that the division of the kingdom under Jeroboam I, which occurred in 931 B.C., occurred when Tobit was a young man. But Tobit is also said to have been a young Israelite captive living in Nineveh under Shalmaneser in the late 8th century. That would be in the 700s, 200 years later. This would make him a young man, almost 200 years old at the time of the Assyrian captivity, and he lived into the reign of Esarhaddon, who reigned from 680 to 668 B.C. But according to Tobit 14.11, Tobit died when he was 158 years old, and it says 102 in the Latin. So here's a major discrepancy of time in Tobit chapter 1. In Judith 1.1, there's a declaration that Nebuchadnezzar reigned over the Assyrians at Nineveh at the time that Arphaxad reigned over the Medes in Ecbatana. The problem with that is Nebuchadnezzar never reigned over the Assyrians in Nineveh. And he was the second king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He wasn't an Assyrian. And this person, Arphaxad, is completely unknown to history. Third, there are various false doctrines in the Apocrypha. There are prayers and offerings for the dead in 2 Maccabees 12, verses 43 to 45. Giving money makes atonement for sin and also justifies cruelty to slaves in Ecclesiastes 3.36 and 3.38. There's also the teaching of the uh, pre-existence of souls in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. And it also teaches the various emanations from God which was, came into Gnosticism and was part of Gnosticism in uh, Wisdom of Solomon 7.25. There's also support for the doctrine of purgatory and various other doctrines that are unique to Roman Catholicism in the Apocrypha. So if the Apocryphal books are to be accepted as part of the Old Testament canon, then you can see that it would completely change our whole theology and set of doctrines. Now, how do we resolve all this? Well, we have to understand that the Jewish community consistently recognized either 22 or 24 books depending on how you divide them up. There were three communities of Jews in the ancient world as you can see in this map. There was one community in Babylon that never returned after the Babylonian captivity and in the Babylonian Talmud which was written about 200 A.D. but reflects oral traditions that go back much earlier. We can't say how far back they go, but we know that these traditions probably went back to at least the time of Christ, if not to about 100 B.C. In Baba Bathra, we read the most ancient record with regard to the sequence of the books in the Hebrew Scriptures is that given in the Babylonian Talmud. Excuse me, this is taken from uh, Ginsburg's introduction to the Masoretical Text writing about uh, the Talmud. He says the most ancient record with regard to the sequence of the books in the Hebrew Scriptures is that given in the Babylonian Talmud. Passing over the Pentateuch, over which there has never been any doubt, it is here laid down on the highest authority that the order is Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, the basic order that we have in our Hebrew Bible, and consists of 22 or 24 books. And he says, and that is the earliest listing among the Jewish community. So the Babylonian community of Jews in um, recognize the same 22 or 24 books which we have in our Old Testament uh, canon. second major community of Jews was in Palestine, which we call Judea. And the Palestinian community is represented by Josephus, who affirmed that there were 22 books, and in 4th Ezra, which is also an apocryphal or debated book that was written about the same time towards the end of the first century. Josephus, in the book Contra Appion, which means against Appion, it was a defense of Judaism uh, to a Gentile, 
which was written about 70 to 80 A.D., Josephus writes, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us that contradict and disagree with each other like the Gentiles have, but only 22 books which contain the records of all the past times which are justly believed to be divine. Of them, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and traditions of the origin of mankind until his death, a little more than 3,000 years. But as to the time of the death of Moses until the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their time in 13 books, the remaining four books containing hymns to the God and precepts to the conduct of human life. So he divides the books up differently, but he still has the, recognizes the same basic Old Testament that we have, 22 or 24 books. In Contra Appion 1.8, he writes that the exact succession of the prophets was broken at about 300 B.C. Now, the third major Jewish community was located in Alexandria. And Philo was a Jewish historian who lived in Alexandria, and he represents that Egyptian community, and he writes about the same time as uh, our Lord lived, and he recognized the same 22 or 24 books. So here you have three distinct Jewish communities in the intertestamental period that are geographically separated. They can't send email back and forth to one another. They don't have fax machines. They don't even even have a Pony Express rider running back and forth delivering information. They're completely isolated. Yet they each uh, come to the same conclusion that there are only 22 or 24 books that are authoritative from God. Now next we need to see that how Jesus and the disciples handled the Old Testament canon. First of all, they presuppose a definite canon of Scripture by what they say. They use phrases like, it is written, and the Scriptures, the Holy Scripture, the Holy Writings, the Sacred Writings, all presuppose a set group of writings for the Old Testament that are canonical. And this is the same group that was accepted by the Jewish community. They never dispute with the Pharisees or the Sadducees over what consists of Scripture. Jesus, the disciples, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all believe in the same group of books that are the Scriptures. They simply assume that some books were authoritative and other books were not authoritative, and they further assume that everyone knew what they were talking about. So there's no reason to debate the canon as far as Jesus and the disciples are concerned. Secondly, Jesus recognized the same threefold division in Luke 24:34, when he is on the road to Emmaus and his disciple he appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus and begins to explain to them it says and he said to them these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms. These are the three divisions of the Hebrew canon. We looked at them already. The law is the Torah, the prophets are the Nevi'im, and in the collection of the writings, the Ketuvim, the first book was Psalms, so it was often referred to, that whole section was often referred to simply as the Psalms. The Apocrypha, incidentally, were never listed in any Jewish compilation of the Ketuvim. They were never included in any Jewish compilation of the Old Testament. And so Jesus here recognizes the three divisions that were accepted by the Jews as, as in terms of the organization of the Scriptures. And then in Matthew 23:35, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and makes a very interesting statement. He says that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, why does Jesus say from Abel to Zechariah? Now, it's not from A to Z. He's not using an English alphabet. He's got a Hebrew alphabet, and it's a different order. Now, he can't be thinking chronologically here. See, that's how we approach it. We think in terms of chronology. 
because Zechariah is not the last prophet martyred chronologically in the Old Testament. The record of the assassination of Zechariah is found in 2 Chronicles 24.20 and occurred about 825 B.C. But he is not the last prophet slain in the Old Testament chronologically. Uriah was slain in 600 B.C., 220 according to Jeremiah 26, verses 20 to 23. So why does Jesus focus on Zechariah? Because he is looking at the list in terms of the canon. Remember what I said earlier? The Old Testament canon began with Genesis, but the last book in the canon was Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles 24.20, we have the murder of Zechariah. So the murder of Abel is in Genesis chapter 4, and the murder of Zechariah is the last in the canon of the Old Testament. So from Jesus is saying from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, you have consistently rejected my prophets and killed them. So this again emphasizes the fact or indicates that Jesus accepted the Jewish canon as it stood at that particular time. Further, New Testament writers never quote from the disputed books. And if you read, uh, any, if you read through books like Ecclesiasticus or the Wisdom of Solomon, you'll see that there are a number of interesting parallels to Paul's thought. There are a number of very good things that are said there, but no writer in the New Testament ever quotes from these disputed books. Now, Jude quotes from a, from a book called Enoch, which was never disputed. It was never questioned. Nobody ever considered including it in the canon. So that's not the issue. He simply quotes from, from the book of Enoch, just like we would quote from another piece of literature to illustrate a point. So there are never any quotations in the New Testament from any of the apocryphal books. Now, when we look at the transmission of the canon, we need to look at at some of the remarkable ways that God has preserved the canon and how He has made it clear to us. So we'll put a timeline up on the overhead, put the cross in the middle, death of cross about A.D. 33. Now the Masoretic text, which is the oldest text that we have until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, was the Ben Asher Codex, which was kept in the public library at Leningrad in Moscow until it was finally sold by the Russians. Now, how accurately was this particular text transmitted? Especially when we realize that much of the, of the Old Testament was written at least 1,300 years earlier and some of it was written as, as much as, as um, 2,400 years earlier if you go back to the Pentateuch. Wouldn't there be a lot of mistakes? In fact, at the time that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948, most Protestant, and by that you have to realize, I'm saying liberal, uh, theologians questioned the accuracy of the Masoretic text. They thought there were, that was their presupposition that many errors would have crept into the text and there would be many problems. And they, were, they preferred, much preferred the Septuagint or some of the other translations that could be dated back to about the time of Christ. But in 1948, a shepherd discovered in, in some caves at Qumran down by the Dead Sea uh, a, a whole bunch of scrolls, and as they went through a very caves, they discovered a, an entire library from a community that lived there, and these became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they uh, contain writings from about 250 B.C. up to about 100 A.D. And I've spent some time perusing a book written by a good friend of mine named Randy Price, J. Randall Price, just wrote a book called The Secrets of the Dead Sea Scrolls that came out from uh, Harvest House. And it's really fascinating all the things that went into the discovery of the scrolls and their theology and background. And he gets a little technical at points, but it's a pretty thorough study. It's about two inches thick. I, don't, I can't imagine. That's about his fourth book on archaeology. And he's just done a fantastic job. Anyway, the New Testament, just to give you a frame of reference, that little square represents the uh, time that the New Testament canon was written from about 45 A.D. up to about... 95 A.D. The Old Testament canon was written 
from 1400 B.C. to about 350 B.C. So there's a gap of about 100 years between the Old Testament canon and the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. It's also interesting to note that in some of the apocryphal works, for example, Judas Maccabees in 2 Maccabees recognizes that the canon of the Old Testament is closed. He has the same canon. He recognizes the end of the, uh, of the prophetic gift, and that's written about 175 B.C. So it was clear that the Jews, even before Christ, recognized that the canon was closed and that God had closed the doors of Revelation about 300 B.C. Now, what did the Dead Sea Scrolls teach us? What did we learn about this? Well, Weston Fields, who was the director of uh, research on the Dead Sea Scrolls, wrote, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we were brought back almost within a generation of the writing of the last book of the Bible. In fact, some Dead Sea Scrolls uh, scholars pushed the date back to 300 B.C., which is within just a few years of the closing of the canon. The oldest scroll is conservatively dated at 250 B.C., and some would date the oldest ones as early as 300 B.C. There's probably only 25 years or less between the time the last book was written and our earliest copies of the Hebrew Old Testament. This gives us a great deal more confidence about the text and the way it was passed along because we are able to compare what has been passed to us, which are later copies, but represent a very early text with what we have in the scrolls, however fragmentary they might be. The scrolls revealed a number of interesting things about the accuracy of the Masoretic text. Suddenly, we had copies of the Old Testament that were 1,000 to 1,200 years earlier than what we already had, so we could compare them with one another. The importance of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls is, first of all, that it shows the history of the transmission of the text. We learn that there is a liberal as well as a conservative philosophy among the Jews in copying the text. In the Babylonian community, they believe that if you understand it or not, you still keep it the same. You never change anything. You don't tamper with the text at all. This is sort of the philosophy like the translators of the New American Standard. Very conservative. In Palestine and in Egypt, the view was to continually modernize the text, change the grammar, modernize the vocabulary, remove the archaisms, smooth over any apparent discrepancies. Sort of the philosophy of those who translated the NIV. It's a much looser translation. The point is that by A.D. 100, the conservative philosophy won out. It was sanctioned by one of the most famous rabbis at that time, Rabbi Akiba, and so it was the conservative copies of the text that became the basis eventually for the Masoretic text. And all of the copies of the Old Testament that reflected the liberal view, the looser view of copying the text, all of those were destroyed. And only the conservative ones were uh, maintained. Now the Qumran discoveries authenticate the Masoretic text. For example, uh, Miller Burroughs, who wrote a book, he was the head of the uh, American School of Oriental Research at the time, uh, wrote in his book, Light on the Dead Sea Scrolls, that in this state of affairs, the discovery of the biblical manuscripts, centuries older than the standard medieval manuscripts of the Old Testament, is an event of major importance for textual criticism. Even though the discussion is somewhat technical, we must assess the value of the Dead Sea Scrolls in this respect. The St. Mark scroll, which came to be known as the Great Isaiah Scroll, is the only scroll that contains a whole book of the Bible. And with the exception of some of the small fragments, it is the oldest of the manuscripts found in the cave. We may note the following. The age of the manuscripts does not indicate its importance. It may be older, but that does not mean it's a good copy. Now let's see what we learned, what Burroughs tells us about the Isaiah scroll. I think this is fascinating. In the Isaiah scroll which was written about 200 B.C., when it's compared to the Masoretic text, there were about 200 variances, 200 differences between the two scrolls. Now, in the late 1940s, the translators of the Revised Standard Version, and Miller Burroughs was on the RSV uh, Executive Committee of Translation, 
had a more liberal bias, and they came to the text doubting the accuracy of the Masoretic text. They all believed that it had been corrupted to a large degree. So when they took the discoveries from the Qumran scrolls and compared the Isaiah scroll with the Masoretic text, they concluded that the Masoretic text was the product of a more conservative school and was a superior text to that found in Qumran, that it was clearly a more reliable text. After comparing and analyzing the 200 differences between the Qumran text and the and the uh, Masoretic text, they rejected all but 13 of the differences. 13 were accepted. But about five years after the publication of the RSV, Miller Burroughs wrote, wrote that he doubted the veracity now of most of those 13 in which they hadn't even made those changes. So that just gives us confidence in the way God worked in the preservation of the Old Testament to keep it free from error. Now, just a note to conclude this introductory study. Recently, there's been a lot of publicity about uh, so-called hidden codes in the Old Testament. You have these books, the Bible Code and secret codes in the Bible, and and even some evangelicals have fallen into the trap of um, believing there's some kinds of codes. Now, the way these codes work is on the basis of what's called a number skip code. And you take a word, for example, in, in English, you would have a sentence that um, like this, and you take out all the spaces. And you just run everything together in one long line. And it just go, would go on and on and on, and there would be no spaces. And then with computers, you can start running... Uh, certain searches on these words to see if you can find something like every 1,050th letter or 4,782nd letter. And it's called a number skip. So you'll take a, a letter here and then go over four letters and then go over three or four letters and pick another one. And then you come up with words. And so you discover hidden code. That's what's called a number skip code. Now the problem is that that presupposes an absolute, the knowledge of the original text. And we don't have it. See, if you insert one word or two letters here, or even one letter at any point, it changes the numerical sequence from that point on. And from that point on, you come up with different letters. And there are no two ancient manuscripts of the Hebrew text that are identical. And one reason for that is just modernization of spelling. I mentioned at the beginning that the Masoretes developed a way of, uh, for example, you just have a, a consonant text, B-R, and then an Aleph, and the Masoretes developed a series of points and dots and dashes to indicate vowel points. But about the time of Christ, some rabbis introduced another system where they used uh, other vowels. For example, uh, apostrophe-looking thing like that is a yod, and they would use that for, a, for an I sound, or they would introduce a vav, which looks like that, and that would be inserted to represent either an O sound or a U sound. Now, the thing is that because of variances, different schools of transmission, some writers would use these, um, are called matrix lectionis, and some would use the mater and some wouldn't use the mater. And so one manuscript would have one series of letters and another manuscript would have a different series of letters, but no two manuscripts would agree. Spelling differences, uh, word inversion or a word left out here or there. So the whole problem with this whole number skip code and the Bible code thing is that it presupposes an absolute original text which we do not have. So don't get sucked into thinking that there's some kind of hidden message or prophecies in the Bible. Not only that, but I read an excellent critique in Biblical Archaeology Review a couple of years ago and it stated that in order to make some of the things mean what they wanted it to mean, they had to uh, really play with translation a lot. For example, one place where it says, uh, I think it was uh, uh, one of the men was assassinated, uh, the text in the Hebrew really means manslaughter, and that's how it's understood in the original passage in Numbers and always been translated as manslaughter. But in order to get this hidden meaning of the text, they had to change the meaning to assassination. So don't get caught up with thinking there's some kind of hidden code in the Bible. It has nothing to do with inspiration or inerrancy. Now, in this opening introduction to the Old Testament, 
I just wanted to look at three things. The arrangement of the text, how it's divided in both the Hebrew canon and the English canon, and how we know that we have the Old Testament, why it consists of the 39 books of our English Bible, why the Apocrypha is, is excluded, and to look at the transmission so that we can have a sense of confidence that even though there may be some textual variances from manuscript to manuscript, we can be confident that we have the Word of God and it has been accurately transmitted to us. And so starting from an inherent, infallible text, then we can come to understand accurately what God has to say to us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at these things this morning, to have our our confidence strengthened in Your Word, knowing that we do have Your Word that was written down centuries, millennia ago, and has been preserved accurately for us to this time. And Father, we thank You for the way the Old Testament continually points the way to Jesus Christ and all of the prophecies, that there is salvation in no other than the promised Messiah of Israel. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without an understanding of eternal life, that they would take the opportunity to settle that right now. That salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. The Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So how are you saved? Simply by faith in Jesus Christ. The Scripture says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So right now, sitting where you are, all you have to do is make a decision. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? If so, you have eternal life. From this point on, you can never lose it. It's yours forever and ever and guarantees an eternal destiny in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we thank You for the things that we have studied this morning and pray that You would encourage us with them and strengthen our walk with You as a result of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.